Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn with us to that passage that we just read, Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34. Uh, I know most of us were probably up bright and early before the sun came up, just pouring over the book of Ezekiel line by line. Uh, But for those of us that weren't doing that, feel free to stop by the table of contents uh, on your way there. It's a great resource uh, for you. But we're going to be in that passage for most of our time together this morning. Um, If you're new around here, uh, we have been in a series the past month or so uh, called Question Everything where we've been addressing some of the most pressing questions and issues people tend to have when it comes to Christianity and faith in Jesus. We've been doing some work on some of the more common reasons that people cite in wanting to deconstruct or maybe even outright leave their faith altogether. And as we were thinking through it, we've got this week and next week before we wrap the series up. And and as we were thinking through it, Uh, We just decided that a series like this one and covering topics like that would not be complete without addressing the very difficult question that we're going to go at this morning, which is why is the church often complicit in abuse? So if you're new, welcome. Um, You chose quite the Sunday to join us. Uh, It's not always quite this heavy, um, but as we're going to get to here in a second, we kind of felt like this was a necessary conversation to have. Uh, The examples of abuse by church leaders and by spiritual authorities are many, as I probably don't even have to tell you, but last year, a four-month investigation found that the world-famous Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias had leveraged his notoriety and reputation to sexually abuse massage therapists who were on his ministry's payroll. He reportedly told one of them that she was his, quote, reward for living a life of service to God. Also in the year 2020, New York City pastor Carl Lentz was fired from his post at Hillsong Church, most notably for having an affair, but it was subsequently revealed that the affair was really just the final straw in a longer list of very fireable offenses that had been happening for years behind the scenes, including sexual harassment and inappropriate sexual relationships with staff members at his church. Back in 2014, Seattle pastor Mark Driscoll resigned from the church that he started 20 years earlier. His resignation was him responding to, and some would say it was him avoiding, an investigation that was launched into long-running reports of domineering, bullying, and arrogant behavior from him running all the way back to the founding of the church. Evidently, he had told some pastors that left his church to start another one that he would, quote, tear down their new church brick by brick. And those are just a few of the more recent, more prominent examples of abuse committed by church leaders. I'm sure many of us in the room could rattle off way more examples without much thought at all. Bill Hybels, Jerry Falwell Jr., Ted Haggart, Jim Baker, Catholic priest over the past 25 years or more, Southern Baptist as recent as this past year. The list goes on and on and on. 
In more recent years, words like pastor and priest have become strangely synonymous with words like scandal and abuse. And on top of that, for an awful lot of people, stories of abusive religious leaders aren't just on the news or in the headlines. For many people, it's a part of their own story, or at least the story of people who are close to them. For instance, just my best guess through pastoring this church over the past five years is that somewhere around half of the people I meet who start coming around our church family have at least one story in their life of unhealthy or abusive church leaders. So this morning, I am going to attempt to give a teaching that, to be honest, I would rather not give. As a pastor, as someone who dearly loves the church, it is not easy for me to talk about the times that the church has done more harm than good. But I think we need to have the conversation. Because if we don't, I think we risk doing what the church has so often done regarding this topic in particular, and that's just not talking about it and hoping that the problem goes away. And that response is obviously not working. So this morning, we are going to attempt an honest conversation about the abuse committed by churches and church leaders. But like always, we want to start this conversation with the scriptures. That's always how we approach it here at City Church. And if we do that, if we just take an honest survey of the Bible as a whole, I think we find that the Bible has quite a bit to say on this topic, both about the existence of abusive and unhealthy church leaders and about God's condemnation of them. To name a few, in the Old Testament, we read about two sons of the high priest that used their power and position to steal sacrifices and seduce the women assisting in the tabernacle. They are subsequently judged by God for their sin. We read about David, the king of Israel, who once used his power and position to summon another man's wife to sleep with her and get her pregnant. He then attempts to use his power to cover it all up, and when that doesn't work, he uses his power to have her husband killed. God then sends a prophet, Nathan, to expose and rebuke David for his sin. In the New Testament, Jesus himself picks up the mantle of confronting and calling out abusive leaders, rounding out one of his most famous teachings, the Sermon on the Mount, by telling his followers to, quote, watch out for false prophets, i.e. leaders who claim to speak for God but don't. He says that these false prophets will come to them, quote, in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. In other words, we should look out for leaders who project innocence and virtue, but are actually out to harm and destroy people. Throughout the Gospels, particularly in passages like Matthew 23, Jesus rails on religious leaders who live very differently than they preach. Leaders that elevate themselves by condemning and putting down others. Leaders that take advantage of their spiritual authority and use it to serve only themselves. And leaders that live hypocritical lives using external righteousness to conceal greed and corruption and self-indulgence under the surface. And it doesn't stop with Jesus either. A majority of the New Testament letters in our Bible contain some warning in them about abusive leadership in the church. Members and leaders of churches were repeatedly told to keep an eye out for anyone posing as a spiritual authority while using that authority to harm and deceive people. 
So this idea is addressed really all over the scriptures, beginning to end. But perhaps the most detailed, extensive passage about abusive leadership in the Bible is found in our passage this morning, Ezekiel chapter 34. In this passage, God addresses a group of people simply called the shepherds of Israel. Now, shepherding is a major metaphor used throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New, to refer to the leaders of God's people. Shepherds lived among the sheep in order to care for them and were willing to sacrifice comfort, convenience, even life and limb in order to keep the sheep safe. That's the metaphor that we are given for how spiritual leaders should function in the Bible. However, here in Ezekiel 34, the passage that we're going to look at today, God is going to call out some spiritual leaders who were embodying the very opposite of that posture of shepherds. So let's read verses 1 through 6 of that passage, and then we'll pause and draw some things out of it. Pick it up with me in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you shepherds of Israel who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, you clothe yourselves with the wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. Let's stop there for now. So God wants his prophet Ezekiel to confront a group of spiritual leaders for how they have led God's people. He starts by accusing them of eating the curd, slaughtering the choice animals, and clothing themselves with the wool. So follow what's being said there. Rather than caring for the sheep in their charge, these shepherds that we're speaking to, they ate the food that was meant only for the sheep, they slaughtered some of the sheep that they were supposed to keep safe, And then they used the wool off of the sheep that they killed to comfort themselves. It would be hard to come up with the actions of a shepherd more opposite from what shepherds were supposed to be doing than what was just listed. Notice the intense irony here. The shepherds were supposed to keep the sheep safe from predators, but in this passage, they have evidently become the sheep's predators. The one place that the sheep were supposed to be able to go for safety became the most dangerous place for them to be. This so often tends to be the case in some churches. The the people who are supposed to be protectors have become predators instead. The leaders who are called to live alongside and care for their people in sacrificial ways, those people have become some of the most dangerous ones to be around. And the impact that that can have on people is devastating. It is so difficult to reckon with a situation where someone you thought was safe ended up intentionally harming you. There aren't really words for how devastating that can be. That's the scenario being described in this passage. Then he continues saying that these shepherds have neglected to strengthen the weak. 
They've neglected to heal the sick, to bind up the injured. They haven't brought back the strays or searched for the lost sheep. Again, these were all things that shepherds were supposed to be doing regularly. After a sheep would be attacked by a predator, injured by a fall, the shepherd's job was to tend to that sheep until they were healed up. When a sheep wandered off, the shepherd's job was to go and find them and then bring them back to safety. This is why Jesus in the Gospels tells a story about a shepherd that left the 99 to find the one. That's the idea there. These were all tasks and responsibilities just baked into the job of a shepherd. They were basic expectations, but these shepherds in Ezekiel 34 had evidently neglected to do any of it. Instead, it says that they ruled over these sheep harshly and brutally. They tried to control the sheep rather than care for them. And as a result, they harmed more than they helped. And as a result of all of this, the passage says that these sheep were, quote, scattered on every high hill. Because they weren't being cared for, protected, or helped, and because they were actively being harmed, they ran away. They, they wandered off. They left. So this is a metaphor, but it's not a very difficult metaphor to follow, Right? I mean, we could fairly easily map each movement of this passage onto our present-day situation within the American church. Pastors and leaders have often used and harmed people rather than helping them, sometimes causing tremendous damage. They have often neglected to do the very essence of their job. They've neglected to care for the hurting, protect the vulnerable, to keep the flock safe. And all of this has directly contributed to people being scattered people walking away from specific churches or even the church in general because they were not cared for well or even because they were directly harmed by the church. And it's not just that this all happens once in a blue moon, right? Like we mentioned at the beginning, the problem is that it keeps happening. It, it seems like the problem is a little bit deeper and a little more pervasive than just the occasional pastor doing sinful things. It would seem that the problem is actually that the church has often covered for or covered up or concealed the actions of these leaders. It would seem that we at times have created an environment that is ripe for this sort of thing to happen. So why is that? Why is it that, that churches keep allowing this to happen on their watch? How does it keep happening on repeat? I would say that's a question that needs answering. From what I've seen, there are at least three major dynamics at play that contribute to these types of environments being created within churches. I think you could call them misordered priorities within churches and church leadership that can contribute to a culture of abuse. I'm sure there's way more than these. These, in my experience, over the past 10 to 12 years have been the, the most common, the ones that I see play out over and over and over again. And so I want to walk you through these three misordered priorities. And really what we're going to see is that they're all sort of interconnected. But three misordered priorities I see that contribute to abusive dynamics within the church. The first one I've seen is that we sometimes elevate career over calling. Career over calling. So I think sometimes what happens is that specifically churches and church leaders and pastors are motivated more by careerism in their pastors than they are by calling. 
They are interested more in pastoring as a job than they are as a lifelong responsibility. We get a glimpse of this in the Ezekiel passage when it says that these bad shepherds were, quote, only taking care of themselves when good shepherds would be caring for the flock. What would sometimes happen when you hired a shepherd back in that day, just like when you hire for any job, even today, is that sometimes you end up with someone who is there only for a paycheck. They're not there because they love the work of shepherding or even because they see the value in the work. They're they're there simply because they want to get paid for being a shepherd. Now, that can obviously be unhealthy when it comes to any job out there, but I think it becomes especially harmful when other people's faith and spiritual health are on the other side of that transaction. Because it creates this dynamic where shepherds are inclined to use the sheep rather than caring for them. And in fact, that's exactly what happens in this passage. So often, pastors end up using congregations to gain notoriety for themselves or or to gain praise and adulation from people or to land a book deal or to increase their Twitter followers or to land a better ministry job in the future or any number of other goals. And when they do that, it creates this dynamic where leaders are quick to harm and use people rather than sacrificially shepherding them. I see this so often in how some pastors will jump from church to church, from job to job every year or two throughout their career. It it becomes obvious after a while that each church is little more than a stepping stone for them. And as a pastor, if each church you're at is just a holding pattern until you get a better job offer at another church or at another ministry, your focus is probably not going to be most on how to best love and serve your congregation. It tends to be more on how you can use them as leverage to gain your next opportunity. And it's not hard to see how that can contribute fairly quickly to abusive dynamics between pastors and their congregations. The second misplaced priority, I would put like this. We have valued charisma over character. Charisma over character. This one, from what I've seen, is extremely common. Far too often in our churches, we put someone in charge because they're gifted or because they're charismatic, or because they're a good speaker, or because they've been successful in the business world, or whatever other metric we want to use, we assume that if a person is talented, they must have the character to back it up. If a person is gifted, surely that means they would make a good pastor. But I want you to contrast that mentality, that priority, with a passage like 1 Timothy 3. We'll put this on the screen. It says, here is a trustworthy saying, Whoever aspires to be an overseer, in other words, a leader within the church, that person desires a noble task. Now, the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect." If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? 
He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Now, we don't have time to unpack all of those qualifications and that whole passage this morning. But did you hear how many qualifications were in those seven verses? It's upwards of 15, just depending on how exactly you count it. And notice that in that long list of qualifications for a spiritual leader, except for one of them, every single qualification is character-based, not skill or talent-based. Do you see that? The only one that is skill-based, arguably, is that they should be able to teach. I think that emphasis is significant in passages like these. Evidently to God, a pastor's character is more important than their skill set. And that isn't to say that skill set doesn't matter, it does. We've all sat through someone giving a sermon who could not give a sermon, right? Like I get that. I get that skill set matters. I'm just saying that according to this passage, it isn't skill set that qualifies someone to be a pastor. It's their character. A person should not be a pastor just because they're talented enough to be one. They should be a pastor if their character is consistent with that of a pastor. And when you put someone in a position of spiritual authority that does not have the character to correspond to it, abuse is going to happen frequently. That's the dynamic that contributes to it. So we have to stop prioritizing charisma over character within the church. And third, this one's very connected to the second one, I think we also have prioritized results over faithfulness. Results over faithfulness. I tried to make them all start with a C, but I couldn't come up with words for this one. So if you have thoughts on ways to make those start with a C, just let me know. Um, Deeply connected to the second one, like I mentioned, is when we value results over faithfulness. Another way of putting that would be that we often value the achievements of pastors more than we value their consistency with the scriptures. Sometimes when a church overvalues numerical growth or organizational growth or financial growth or even cultural impact, they will sacrifice other more important things along the way to achieve that. You see this often in abusive environments when harmful behavior from a pastor or a leader gets pointed out by someone, but other people respond with, yeah, but the church is growing. Or look at how many people are getting baptized. Look at how good the church is doing right now. Surely we don't want to interrupt that, interfere with that. And sometimes abusive churches and church leadership structures will even demonize the people sounding the alarm by saying that those people are just trying to tear down the good work of the church. This quickly creates a mentality where the end justifies the means where most anything can be excused or justified in the name of results. It creates situations where churches are hesitant to let a leader go because doing so will negatively affect the impact of that church. And generally speaking, from what I've seen, that is the beginning of the end. When you make that decision, that is the beginning of the end. Instead, 
we should be valuing more than just results as God's people. What we should value is faithfulness. Faithfulness to the way of Jesus, faithfulness to the scriptures. We should value going about the right things in the right ways. A way to honor God, not just with the outcomes of our actions, but with the very actions themselves. That is what it means to faithfully lead a church. So just practically speaking, here at City Church, we have put quite a few safeguards in place to try and discourage as much as we can abusive leadership dynamics. For starters, our church is led by multiple pastors, not by a singular pastor. We do that, one, because we see that as the pattern in scriptures for how a church is led, but we also do it strategically. We do it as a safeguard for the pastors and for the church. We don't think it's healthy for one person to call all of the shots without ever being able to be challenged by other people. We don't think that's a healthy dynamic. All of our pastors are friends with one another, not just coworkers. So there is an expectation that we are regularly noticing and calling out things within each other that need to be called out. All of our pastors are also in life groups where church members have a direct, regular, frequent view into their everyday lives and into their character where those people in their life groups are given free reign to encourage the pastors on any area of their life that seems inconsistent with the scriptures, to call those things out when they see them and call them towards the good news of Jesus. Our budget is reviewed regularly by an accountant and twice a year by a financial advisory team made up of members of City Church who take a detailed look at how and where we spend money and help us make decisions in that regard. So we've put into place all of these measures, and there's more. Those are the big ones. We've put into place all of these measures here at City Church so that we can help discourage any type of abusive dynamic among our leadership. Now listen, this is important. I don't say any of that to say that bad things can never happen here. I can't make you that promise, and you shouldn't believe any church that does make you that promise. So I'm not saying nothing bad can ever happen. But I tell you all of that to say that we here at City Church, one, understand the gravity of the problem in the church at large, and two, we try to discourage those things happening here as best we know how. We want to do everything we can to help prevent anything like this happening. But all of that said, those measures are just that. They're preventative. They're what you do in advance. They are ways to try to avoid the abuse happening in the first place. But the reality is that, unfortunately, for many churches, for many people who have been in the church, that ship has already sailed. The abuse has already happened. So before we're done, I did want to just talk for a bit about how we should respond to abuse from church leaders once it does happen. What do we do in response? And for that, I want us to take a look at God's response to the bad shepherds in Ezekiel 34. So pick it back up with me in verse 7. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd and so has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals, and because my shepherds did not search for my flock but cared for themselves rather than for my flock, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. 
I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. For this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. There's a few things I want to draw out from those verses we just read that are important for how we respond to the abuse of spiritual leaders. First, the first part of God's response that we just saw is that God is against bad shepherds. He's against bad shepherds. That's in verse 9. He says, I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. If you are in the room or you're listening online today and you have suffered legitimate abuse from a church leader or from a spiritual leader, I need you to hear me say this. God is against that leader. He's against that leader. I think that's so important for us to know because here's the dynamic that so often takes place in these types of abusive situations. When there is abuse, it, they are a church leader and you are a church member which means they get idolized and you get vilified. The assumption is that God is on the leader's side since they are a, quote, man of God or minister of the Lord, and you evidently aren't. And so what happens is that so often the leader gets believed and you don't. That is the way it so often plays out. But I want you to hear me say that if you are the survivor of abuse, God is not on that leader's side. No matter how gifted they are, no matter how talented they are, he is against them and against the abuse. That is so very important for us to know. We're also told in the passage that God will hold those leaders accountable. The person who mistreated you, neglected you, harmed you, abused you, it may feel like, even right now, they got away with it. But the reality is that nobody gets away with abuse when Jesus is king. Nobody. They will be held accountable for everything they said, everything they did. God promises that in this passage. So first, we need to know that God is against bad shepherds. Second, we see in the passage that God removes bad shepherds. God removes bad shepherds. In the second half of verse 9, God says, I will remove them from tending the flock so that they can no longer feed themselves. Notice here that the correct response to abusive leaders is to remove them from leadership. Not quietly demote them to a lesser position of leadership within the same church. Not give them a stellar recommendation so that they can go pastor another church across town or on the other side of the country where they can repeat the same patterns. The correct response is to remove them as a leader. There are processes in, in place in the scriptures for how exactly that happens, but the end result is that confirmed abuse leads to re removal from leadership. Now, I know some may say in response to that, okay, but what about grace? What about forgiveness? And to that, I would simply say that grace and forgiveness have nothing to do with a person continuing in leadership. We can show a person tremendous grace and tremendous forgiveness and still not keep them in a position of leadership where they can harm more people. 
Leadership within the church is earned, not given. And if taking a person out of church leadership because they were unhealthy or abusive devastates that person, that's probably a good sign that they needed to be taken out of leadership in the first place. The response to an abusive leader is to take them out of leadership. That's the second thing. And then finally in the passage, we see that God replaces bad shepherds. God replaces bad shepherds. Now, I think that's true in two ways based on what we see in the passage and in scriptures as a whole. First, notice that no matter how bad some shepherds are, God never chooses to give up on the idea of shepherding itself. God continues in this very same book of the Bible to set up new kings and priests and leaders over the nation of Israel. He continues to send to them prophets, vocal leaders who speak on behalf of God to his people. In the New Testament, God sets up leaders in every local expression of the church and uses this very same language from Ezekiel 34. He calls them shepherds. The word pastor in the Bible is the exact same word as the word shepherd. God doesn't bail on the idea of leadership just because some leaders are bad. I think that's important for us to realize in our current cultural climate. The solution to bad leadership isn't no leadership, but rather better leadership. But second, the passage tells us that God also replaces leaders in another way. He replaces bad leaders with himself. He says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. That's the work of a shepherd. God insists that he will function as the shepherd that the leaders of Israel had failed to be. He will look after his own people. He will care for them. He will search for them and bring them back to safety. A few verses later in Ezekiel chapter 34, it says that he will seek the lost. He will bring back the strayed. He will bind up the injured and he will strengthen the weak. God himself will be what the leaders of Israel failed to be. He will heal where they injured. He will restore where they neglected. In John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus actually picks up on this very same imagery, and he reveals that he, Jesus himself, will be the good shepherd that God was referring to. Saying there, we'll put this up on the screen, I am the good shepherd And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus would one day come and be the very opposite of the bad shepherds of Israel. He would embody what they failed to be. And he would do that by laying down his very life for the sake of the sheep. That is the mark of a good shepherd. A bad shepherd, like we mentioned, is simply there to collect a paycheck. He doesn't care if he neglects some sheep or if he harms others. As long as he gets paid, that's as far as his concern goes. But the good shepherd doesn't see shepherding primarily as a career. He sees it as a calling, a calling on his very life. He lays down his very life for the sheep. Jesus showed himself to be the good shepherd by going to the cross, giving up his life so that you and I could benefit from it. He sacrificed everything, his comfort, his convenience, his very body and blood and breath in his lungs so that we could belong to him. So if you're in the room this morning or you're listening to this online and you feel like your primary experience with church leaders in your life has been with that of bad shepherds, 
I do want you to know that there is a good shepherd out there. There is one who can be trusted to always do what is right and not what is wrong, to do what is helpful and not what is harmful, to do what is healing and not what is damaging, and his name is Jesus. I think one of the most damaging things about abuse, especially when it comes to the abuse of spiritual authorities and spiritual leaders, is that it becomes really hard for us not to project that abuse onto the person of God himself. In your mind, as a result of abuse, sometimes the name and the reputation and the person of Jesus becomes very wrapped up in and enmeshed with that harmful experience that you had with a church leader. Sometimes the church leader will even encourage the survivor to, to see them as the same thing, to see him as a representative of God in a really un unhealthy way. But that's also why it's so important that we have conversations like the one we're having this morning. It's so important that we learn to distinguish between bad shepherds and the good shepherd. It's so important that we realize God is not on the side of the bad leaders that we've experienced. He is actually the antithesis of them. And if you let him, he can help you process and heal from the damage that has been caused. So if that's part of your story, if you've been in an abusive situation like that with a church leader, and we here at City Church can be helpful to you in any way in that journey, hear me say we would love to do that. We would love to have that conversation with you. Please reach out to us. As I mentioned earlier, we have a lot of conversations with people that have come through abusive and unhealthy churches. There's a lot of ways that we've learned to walk with people through healing for that sort of thing. And so if we can be helpful to you in your journey like that, we would love to be able to do that. Now that said, I obviously understand if you do not want to talk to another church leader about an abusive situation that you you had with a different church leader. I understand that that would be very uncomfortable for a lot of us. And so if that's the case, let us know. We will be glad to connect you to another person in our church that you can talk to about it, who's been through something similar. Anything we can do, we would love to connect you so that healing and so that restoration can happen, so that you can encounter all of the ways that the good shepherd is the good shepherd to us and that he seeks to step in where other people have failed and be what they have failed to be. So whatever the case, know that there is a good shepherd out there. He is so much better than what you've experienced. And not only that, he knows firsthand what it's like to be mistreated, to be used, to be, to be abused, to be hurt. He knows what that feels like. He knows what it feels like to experience hurt and harm that he didn't deserve to experience. That is a part of Jesus' story too. And he would love to walk with you through whatever healing looks like in the aftermath of it all. So I would just encourage you, one way or another, whether it, it takes weeks or whether it takes years, take that hurt to Jesus. Let us know if there's ways we can help along the way and let him walk with you through it as you heal. If we can, I would love to just close this morning first by praying for any of you that have experienced that. And so if you will, just um, bow your heads, close your eyes. Band, y'all can come on up. Um, 
I'm very aware um, after a teaching like this that um, there are likely dozens of people in this room that have unhealthy or abusive um, spiritual leaders in some way, shape, or form as a part of their story, as a part of their past. Um, And so uh, if that's you, um, I don't know where you're at in processing through it all. I don't know where you're at in um, even just reckoning with the reality of it, but I would love to just pray um, on your behalf in this moment. Maybe you're in a place where it feels like you haven't been able to talk to God um, for, for weeks, for months, for years because of what happened. And so if that's you especially, I, I would love to just pray on your behalf if you'd allow, allow me to do that. Father, you tell us that you are near to the brokenhearted, that you're close to the hurting. God, that where brokenness is, you long to restore. And so God, we we come to you um, this morning as someone who's well acquainted with grief and with suffering and with hurt. And we simply ask that you would meet us there. God, that maybe this morning, even if we don't feel like we can speak to you lately, that you would speak to us. And maybe you would just say to us that you are so much different than all of that. You're so much better than all of that. And that you're against all of that too. God, that we would hear loud and clear that you are on our team. You are for our healing and our protection and our rescue. God, we thank you that you stepped in when everyone else abandoned, when everyone else hurt. You stepped in and you became the good shepherd for us. You sought us out, you rescued us, you brought us back to safety. And God, you desire to do that for any and all of us in this room. And so God, I I pray that um, even if it's a long process for some of us, that that we would at least open ourselves up to that. That we would let you do what you do, which is heal and restore and provide safety. God, second, we, uh, we want to pray that wherever there are abusive and unhealthy leaders, God, we want to pray that right now in this moment they would be led to repent. That they would see themselves accurately, that they would see how offensive their sin is to you, and that they would repent. And that they would come clean and that they would acknowledge what has happened and they would accept whatever consequences come from that. God, what we want is repentance.
And God, our prayer is that you would, in our church, in the big C church, the church at large across the world, that you would raise up more and more good shepherds. God, leaders that want to lead by giving up their lives sacrificially for the church. God, I pray that we would, we would stop being attracted to ministry and ministry leadership because it, it's appealing or because it's popular or because we like being in charge. God, I pray that you would draw more and more people to lead in your churches that want to give up their life to care for the sheep. And God, maybe you even want to do that in this room. And then finally, for all of us, whether we've experienced something like this or not, I want to pray that you would make our church family a safe place for those who have walked through experiences like these. God, we've seen you do so much of it over the past five years. We want to see more and more that when people come around our church family, they wouldn't feel pressured they wouldn't feel uncomfortable. They wouldn't feel awkward. They wouldn't feel like people want to take from them, but they would feel like people want to give up their lives for them. And so God, would you make us a community of people where healing can be found and we can walk alongside people at their own pace to help them encounter the healing that is found in the Good Shepherd. So God, whatever needs to happen, this morning, whatever work you need to do in our midst as it relates to this or, or even as it relates to something altogether different, we just want to ask that we would be open to you doing all of those things, that you would move in our midst, that you would work, that you would heal, that you would restore, that you would rescue. God, you would help us to follow the good shepherd precisely because he is so good. So God, would you help us by your spirit? Would you fill us? Would you move? Would you work? We ask this in your name. Amen.